If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it to uh, the uh, Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, is the passage we'll be uh, exploring this morning. Uh, next week, we'll be resuming our series in the uh, book of Romans. So we want to encourage you to pick back up the challenge that we issued in the beginning of the fall, uh, reading through uh, the book of Romans once uh, per, uh, m- once per uh, month uh, in each of the months that we are in this book. Now, if you um, uh, have lost my train of thought already, um, but, uh, uh, but this morning we wanted to uh, just really launch into something that uh, is uh, kind of prepare us for the beginning of the new year and have chosen a passage that is familiar to many people. Uh, from Luke chapter 10 that includes the parable of the Good Samaritan. Our reading this morning will begin in verse 25, continuing through verse 37. Hear the word of God. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put, uh, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to the man, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to the man, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. And he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of this man, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The word of our God. Let's pray. Holy God, as we come now to this portion of our worship, uh, remind us that worship has not ceased, at least not on our part, um, but worship continues as we listen for your voice through the words that have been recorded, even through that which is preached. May we hear you, and by your spirit may you apply uh, both conviction and encouragement to our lives that you would shape us more and more to be like Christ, to be the one body, until all reach full maturity in Jesus, according to your promise. Use this word and use this time for that uh, to take place. Build us. Build us together. And be glorified 
both by our praise and in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer and our King. Amen. Well, here we are, the first Sunday of the new year. In one sense, it's sort of an odd time. The holidays are past, but our regular routines have not yet resumed. The, it's a little too late to be making New Year's resolutions. In fact, most of us, or many of us, probably have already broken at least some of them that we made in the first place. And I say that with some authority, not just from my own experience, but a few years ago I read in Forbes magazine that only 8% of Americans keep their New Year's resolutions uh, at all. And in an article from January 7, 2015 in the Washington Post, they reported this, that a 1989 study by John C. Norcross of University of Scranton shows that 77% of resolvers had been able to keep their commitments continuously for one week. And so as I read that, that tells me here on January the 5th that almost a quarter of us have already blown it for the year. And so, and because it's not the new year, it's not the time for New Year's resolutions. But while it's too late for New Year's resolutions, it's never too late for us to press the refresh button on our lives, to, uh, to, refer, to renew our, our commitments, to reset our priorities, and to reorient our lives around sound principles that are congruent with the priorities that we have. And otherwise, it's, 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 it's a time, it's a great time for us to fortify the foundations of our lives, perhaps by going back, digging deep, and just going back to the basics, back to the most fundamental things. As I was thinking about that this week, I couldn't help but remember the story of the late Hall of Fame football coach, Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers, who on the training camp, the year following their first championship, so therefore he's gathered with the the team that was the champion of the NFL, He gathered the team before him, everybody down, one knee before him, and he raised his hand and said, Gentlemen, this is a football. He was not taking anything for granted. He was going back and starting at the very beginning so that everything that they did was built upon sound foundation. And it's a time of year for us to do that as well. It's a beginning. It's the beginning of a new year. And so we do press that button and we consider what our priorities are. And as I look, if we look at this passage, which is among the most familiar in all of the scripture that we have before us this morning, I want to suggest to you that this passage itself provides a, a framework, a foundation for faithfulness that we are called to and that many of us long for. It is something that shapes our priorities and it does give direction to our practice. Now, the story begins, or the passage begins with a conversation. And that conversation begins with a question. It's an important question. It is perhaps the most fundamental question. It is a common question. It's found elsewhere in the scriptures. You may realize that, uh, that or remember that The rich young ruler approaches Jesus later in Luke chapter 18, and he asks the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, in the passage that we have before us, it says that the man was motivated by tempting, not tempting, by testing Jesus. And so it's reasonable to look at this and say that his motives were less than genuine. Not certain, because he may want to test him to see if he was trustworthy and everything else. But whether this man was genuine in his motive or not, it does nothing to negate the importance and the significance uh, and the power behind the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question every one of us ought to ask ourselves from time to time, and perhaps no better time than at the beginning of a new year. And Jesus responds to this man's question with a question of his own. The man asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does the law say? Now, I want to stop for a moment and just ask this question. Does it surprise you? Would you find it interesting that Jesus appeals to the law when he is asked the question of how do we get eternal life? How do we inherit eternal life? I think many of us would probably be surprised to think about the fact that Jesus is appealing to the law, being reminded, those who have grown up in evangelical churches, uh, being told that we're not under law, we're under grace, and so we, we tend to have a bad attitude or, or a, uh, a complicated relationship uh, with the law. And yet, when Jesus is asked the most fundamental question, he appeals first and foremost to the law. And it's not the only time he does it. When the rich young ruler comes later and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Rather than asking a question, Jesus lists off several expressions of the law. And that man says, well, I've been doing this. The answer that Jesus gives in this particular passage is the same answer he gave to the Pharisees when they came to him and said, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus says then, as this man responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's important that we recognize that Jesus is appealing to the law because as Paul writes to Timothy, the law is good when it is used lawfully. The scriptures teach us that there are three uses of the law. One is is a reflection of the holiness of God. Every law is an expression of some aspect of his character. Second, which is Jesus' purpose here, is the law itself breaks us and then drives us to the cross. And Jesus is asking this question and appealing to the law in order for this man to recognize, how do I inherit eternal life? He's appealing to the law, not because in the keeping of the law is their life, but by recognizing that he doesn't keep the law, then he has a need that can only be fulfilled by God's grace. Is he now prepared to inherit eternal life? And then the third use of the law is to guide us in the way that we ought to live, in a way that honors God, a way that we are able to say, Lord, I love you. And the way I demonstrate that is not only by lifting my voice up in praise and thanksgiving and worship, but by living in obedience, which is an act of trusting you, honoring you, saying that your ways are right, and I will conform to your ways rather than constantly asking you to bless my ways. And so the man asks an important question, one every one of us ought to be asking, at least from time to time. And then Jesus appeals to the law for the purpose of pointing out, to shining a light on the fact that this guy who wants it isn't keeping even his own standard which is to keep the law of God. 
And the man responds to Jesus' question and even his affirmation of his answer. In the passage says the man wanted to justify himself. And what that means is that he, he wanted to know what the parameters were. He wanted to know where the exemptions were of loving the neighbor. He asked this question. He just wanted to justify himself, this whole idea of loving your neighbor and who is my neighbor. He wanted to know who fits into that definition. Who can he ignore? Who, who can be disqualified? Who can he continue to despise and yet still look good and feel good about himself? And that's not an insignificant passage because every one of us does the same thing. And the man's response leads Jesus to tell the story of a man who was beaten and left for dead and of two religious leaders who saw him and who passed by without offering any assistance. And one man, an outsider, who cared, who had compassion, and who gave himself so that this man may live. Now, the story that we have before us, which is very familiar, is often considered outside of its context. And whenever the story is considered or seen outside of its context, the context of the conversation, there are some spiritual dangers. Taken out of the context of the conversation, it leads to a significant problem. It leads to what we would call a, the A or the social gospel. An idea that the essence of Christianity is found in its moral code and what we do and what we don't do rather than the essence of Christianity being found in the grace of God given to us in the person of Jesus who gave himself for us, even giving himself to death in our place, rising again for our salvation, bringing us and leading us to love God because he loved us first. The idea of a social gospel, which has many appealing aspects, is that we look at the story, we learn the moral, and then we pattern our lives after what Jesus is teaching, which sounds wonderful, and it is. The problem is, is we remove this from the context of the conversation of a man who's asking, how do we get eternal life? And the point that Jesus is trying to make by showing that this man doesn't keep the law. then we miss out on grace altogether. About 100 years ago, a a, a leading theologian named J. Gresham Machen was dealing with the the roots of the social gospel as as we know it today. And, And he pointed out that the social gospel is not just a different expression of Christianity. It is a different religion altogether. Because it's not a religion rooted in grace. Through faith. And becoming justified by the love of God. It is a religion of duty, of do's and don'ts, and belief that, you know, you just do your best and God will do the rest. It's nowhere found in the scriptures. 
And so it's important that we see the story in the context of its conversation. But I also need to point out this. While there is very serious spiritual danger in taking the story out of its context of conversation, there is an equal danger for us spiritually in ignoring the implications altogether. In other words, knowing the story, but not having it direct our lives. And this is often done even by sometimes committed Christians. And I suspect it happens most among committed Christians who are sound doctrinally and who are wanting to make sure they don't fall into the trap of a moralistic Christianity or adding anything to the gospel for our justification. They, they, they are fully committed to the principle that we are justified by God's grace through faith alone. And any idea that we must do works and good deeds with the people who are around us seems to muddy that water. And so in order to make sure that we are clear in our doctrine, they know the story, but it doesn't seem to have any evident impact in their lives. They are not. Maybe I should say at times, I am not. We are not loving our neighbors as we ought. A friend of mine years ago said that there are some people who are, are dead right. Sadly, they're mostly dead. James wrote his letter to Christians like that, like many of us, who had the doctrine down pat, but were not demonstrating their faith. They are not living lives of love towards others as the way Christ has loved them. And this is not a a new problem. In fact, it is a problem in every age of the church and of God's people. I couldn't help but thinking about God's warning to Judah as he wrote to them and spoke to them through the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, listen to what God writes as a warning to Israel about something that he had done in the past. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. So he's speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he gives us reason. God tells us why did he wipe Sodom and Gomorrah out. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, And unconcerned, they did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them. I mean, think about that passage and the significance, particularly in light of some of the culture wars that we have going on around us today. And we think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did God wipe Sodom and Gomorrah out? And and the Lord says they did detestable things before us. And and so there were a number of things that we know from the, uh, if you're a Bible student, that took place in that community. But in the end, what was God's motivating factor and why he wiped them off the face of the earth? It's not what we think often. Here's what God said. The reason I wiped them out had nothing to do with their sexual improprieties. It was because they lacked compassion for the poor and the needy that were around them 
And so I did away with them. And the context of this prophecy was to Judah because they themselves were dead right. Sadly, mostly dead. And so we need to see this passage in its context as a conversation, but it is something that we also need to understand and put into practice. My prayer for Grace Covenant is that we continue to grow to be a people who love God with all of our hearts, our mind, and strength. And that is our priority because that is clearly the priority in this text and all through Scripture that God is first and foremost. But that we would recognize that the Scriptures teach here and all over that it is impossible for us to demonstrate and to love God if we also are failing to love our neighbors in practical ways. And I pray that we would continue to grow. I'm very thankful for many of you who lead the way. And I'm thankful for the steps that we as a church have taken. And I pray we would continue to do that. It's important that we understand that it is possible to love others. And it's not necessarily loving God. It's not an assumption. But God says that if you really love me, it's not possible to not love those who are around you. So now we begin the story itself. And as we consider the story, I'm going to do so uh, relatively quickly and then move on to some of our applications. But to help us process the story, I want you to think of four words that begin with the letter I. First is impractical. Second is immeasurable. Third is imperative. And the fourth is infectious. When we look at the story and we consider what Jesus is trying to teach by sharing the story in response to this man trying to justify himself by knowing what he needs to do and what he can avoid. We see something here that is impractical. In fact, it may even seem irrational to the man to whom he's speaking. The Samaritans who in this story become the heroes, were despised people by the Jews. At one time, they had been related. They still were related, at least uh, by blood. But the Samaritans were a remnant faction from the ten northern tribes that comprised Israel, while Judah still existed in in the southern tribes. But when the Assyrians came in and and raided Jerusalem and took Israel captive, for the sake of self-preservation, a number of the people began intermarrying with the Assyrians, and that began the, that's the root, that's the heritage from which the Samaritans came. Those who were continually faithful Jews, at least in their own estimation, were furious with those who had compromised, who had intermarried and became, in their minds, half-breeds. Consequently, they despised them. A Samaritan was as welcome in a Jewish celebration or in a Jewish presence as Donald Trump would be at Nancy Pelosi's birthday party. (laughs) And so it would have been shocking here to hear this story, 
And it's significant because the story itself could have had the Samaritan as the one who was beaten up and laying. And they certainly would have missed it at that point. No wonder they walked by him. But amazingly, Jesus doesn't tell us anything about the man who is beaten and laying dead. But he does tell this man about two whom he would have identified with. A priest and a Levite. Priest who recognized as the spiritual minister, the, the pastor of the people. And a Levite who would have been a scholar in the law. Um, Leviticus and all the laws of God. Who went by, saw this guy. And some of our Translations suggest that they crossed the road to stay as far away as they could and didn't help him at all. Now, there is a sense in which these guys in the story get a, a bad rap. There are some understandable reasons why they may not want to help. One is perhaps self-preservation. They saw the guy there and he was already beaten up and, and he was bleeding and they would have surmised properly that he'd been beaten up by robbers because he'd been stripped and he was laying there and, and it was a dangerous road and dangerous area known for robbers. And so while we have the benefit of seeing the story as Jesus is telling it, as that the, they had, the robbers have left, as they come along, they don't know. It's quite possible that they're laying in wait for the next person to come in and they would rob and beat them up and, and leave them for death as well. And so therefore... Uh, it would be certainly uh, understandable that they would have fear and they would want to preserve their own lives. And second, it was, it was impractical in this way too because they were also concerned about their own purity. So the law of God says that if anybody touches a dead body, then they become ritually impure for the seven days. This was a priest who was about to go minister. This was a, a, a lawyer who would be serving in some capacity, a, a man of law of God who would be serving and teaching in some capacity, and, and they would have been disqualified for the course of a week. And just think of the number of people that would not be able to be helped through their ministry, through their services, through what they do if they became ritually impure. They would have had to go and quarantine for a time, and in the course of the week, the number of people they normally help, every one of them would go um, ignored just to help this one guy who was pretty much dead already. It's impractical for these guys to go and help this guy. Second, we need to see that it is immeasurable. Because a Samaritan comes by and he sees him and he goes to help him We see no end to the help that he is offering. In verses 33 through 35, we, we, we look at this. He says this, the Samaritan, he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him, he had compassion. Verse 34, he went to him and he bound him up with wounds. Well, with what? So either he was carrying bandages with him or he bound them up with his own cloaks. But either way, they were his own possessions. If he's carrying bandages with him on a dangerous journey, it's probably the case he is going to need them. So he gives of his own resources. Then he pours out on oil and wine on the man's wounds. 
And it's important that we note here, oil and wine are also Old Testament symbols for the Holy Spirit. But they have different functions. The oil soothes and the wine purifies the infections, the alcohol. But he was carrying them with them and therefore his own expense. Then he set him on his own animal. He brought him to the inn where I guess he was going to stay anyway. We don't know if they got separate rooms or not. Probably not. And he took care of them. That was his time. That was his energy. And the next day he went out, uh, he took two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. He'd already probably paid for the previous, no, a denarii would be a day's wage. So he was staying in a pretty, you know, expensive hotel. And the two denarii were, most scholars would say, for payment somewhat in advance. Keep him here. I'm going to be gone for a couple of days. I'll be returning on the third day. And so he's paying a significant price. That's two days of of his own wages for somebody else. And then he makes the promise, if there's any expense that you incur by taking care of this guy, then I'll pay that as well later. So he's writing a blank check. It is costly for this guy, both in time and expense. But what we can't miss here is that this story is an imperative. Because at the end of it, Jesus asked this question, which one of these men was being a good neighbor? The lawyer responded, the one who had mercy. And Jesus said, Go and do likewise, and you will live. And to go and do likewise, that is an imperative. It means this is what you are to do. It is a must. It is a command. This is what Jesus is saying. In response to the man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what are some applications we can take from this? I think the first one I want to challenge you to is to identify yourselves in the story, for all of us to identify ourselves in this story. You see, a moralistic reading of the story would immediately focus on the contrast between the two religious leaders and the Samaritan. And we would recognize that the moral of the story is that we ought to be more like the Samaritan and not like the two religious guys. And that is certainly true. But if this is the only way that we read this passage, we rob ourselves of the power of this story. We need to identify ourselves in the story, and every one of us is the man who is laying there near death. Every person born into this world is born in sin. The wages of our sin is death. We are all dead in our sin. And neither religion spirituality nor morality represented by the priest and the Levite can help us. What we need is someone who would come to us and who would save us. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. 
And it's only when we begin there that we have the power of the gospel because the gospel is the power for life. It's only when we understand that that we can become what we are called to be and what we want to be. We begin by recognizing that we are the one who is dead and Jesus is the one who came to us. If we are anybody else in the story, we are the man who's asking the question in the first place. We're the lawyer who initiated the conversation and who wanted to justify himself because he didn't want to actually have to love his neighbor or he wanted to be free to select which ones were worthy of his love. So not only do we need to identify ourselves in the story, but correspondingly we need to self-diagnose. To the extent that we are the man who's asking the question, that we have this desire to justify ourselves, that we want to look good, we want to keep as much of the law that we have to, and we want to be free to ignore certain aspects of it. We need to be asking ourselves this question. Who do I find it difficult to love? Maybe it's groups of people. Could be a latent or a lingering racism that you grew up with or for some reason have cultivated. Maybe it's social. You don't like the poor or maybe you don't like the rich. Is it possible it's political? That we sit in as one body in Christ and we are just angered, furious, that somebody might support the other party, whatever party that is. Who do you find it difficult to love? It may not be a group. It may be an individual. Who is the hardest person in your life for you to love? To demonstrate love to to help <coughs> in practical ways. I want you to be honest with yourself so you can be honest with God. self-diagnose. We need to be honest so we can confess and we can repent and correspondingly receive grace, being reminded that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. People who do not keep the law even though the law is good. Third is serve your neighbor. And this passage gives us some very practical instructions as to how we are to do that. First is to see the Samaritan saw this man. The other saw him too. But this man looked. This man didn't just look and look away. 
And we need to see the needs that are around us. And there are many. Some are somewhat hidden. Others are hidden in plain sight. We see them so frequently, so often, that we don't really pay attention to them. But there is tremendous need all around us and all around the world. Second, we need to be a people who feel compassion. Every one of these men in the story felt something. At least two of them felt fear and indignation, or maybe indignation, and they moved away. One felt compassion. Compassion means feeling what the other person is feeling. Or as I've heard it said before, that compassion, from a biblical standpoint, is our pain in Christ's heart. And it's important that we recognize that sometimes we look at people and think, oh, they're going to be a pain in my side, backside, whatever. But Jesus looks at us thinking, your pain is in my heart. Do you see the needs? How do you feel? Compassion? Feel the pain that compels us to act? Or can you ignore it? In which case, repent and recognize that Jesus has loved you even despite that. And then act. Only one of these men acted in accordance with the gospel that propels them. But we must be reminded that acting is costly. And that it costs us to bear one another's burdens. Jonathan Edwards in his treatise Christian Charity he wrote this and I'll, I'll translate it in a moment if we are never obliged to relieve others burdens except when we can do it without burdening ourselves in other words what he's saying is if, if it's not if we're not required to help other people except for out of our excesses then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? In other words, if the only responsibility that God's people have is to give out of the excess, I see somebody who's in need, I got a spare hundred, I won't miss that. Or I can write it off, expense accounts for those in ministry, tax write off. If that's the only thing that we are to do, is we're only obligated to help others in need out of that which we have excess, that which causes us no burden, then Edward's question, I think, should ring loudly for us. How can we claim that we are bearing someone else's burden if we never feel a burden at all? And we see that demonstrated here in this particular passage. We are to see... We are to feel. We are to act. Now, some of you may be wondering what happened to the fourth eye. And while I would love to have eliminated it for the sake of time, it's imperative that we consider it. As I said earlier, that there's four eyes. <clears throat> Impractical, immeasurable, imperative, and infectious. And that's finally important to us as well. See, one of the things I want you to notice in this passage, and go back and double-check me on this, 
and triple check me. Go back and read it multiple times. And I want you to see this. There is no evangelistic plan evident anywhere in this passage. None. Jesus didn't say, go and do this, and, you know, and then this is the first step, and then the second step, but it, it carries no merit whatsoever unless this man was deal- Jesus was dealing with this man in particular. His desire for, uh, for um, his, at least his question about life. And here's a story that he tells. And in this story, go, and even in his command, go and do likewise, which is to help the people who are around us. There's no specific evangelism that is there. Now, that doesn't make evangelism unimportant. But it does tell us that expressing compassion, mercy in itself, is noble and a worthy endeavor for the followers of Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to be justified. It is an act of obedience to the one who has loved us. It's an act of saying, Lord, I love you by loving my neighbor. Martin Luther beautifully said, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. And when we engage our neighbors, practically speaking, whether or not there is an evangelistic process that has begun, we are honoring God. We are reflecting the gospel in our lives. We are demonstrating what has happened to us. But it's also true that it is through faithfully loving those particularly most in need that we often earn the right to be heard. Relationships are established. We are able then to give reason for the hope that we have, which is that someone came from outside and helped us as well. It is the reality, the difference between a social gospel and faithful Christianity is this. The order of priority is that God is first and foremost, but people are inseparable. Social gospel, people are ultimate. And we assume, people assume that God is being honored. So when we honor God, conscious of ministering to people through our good deeds, Jesus himself says, then you've done it unto me. See, genuine Christianity is a propulsion of grace. When we have recognized that we are loved, we now love. And you might think of it somewhat like your high school science class. There are two forces that are going on simultaneously. When we are those who love God with all of our mind, all of our hearts, all of our strength. Remember in your science class, you learned about the centripetal force and the centrifugal force? Okay, for those of you who don't remember that, just now think of it this way. Put a ball on an end of a string and then swing it around. And what happens? You can feel it trying to get away. That's known as the centrifugal, think fugitive fugal, the centrifugal force. But there is also a power, in this case a string, that is keeping it centered on its axis, and that is known as the centripetal force. With the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we love God with all of our heart, all of our minds, all of our strength, when God is our priority, he keeps us near him, and yet even though he keeps us near him, at the same time he is compelling us to go outward, where we can demonstrate to everyone who is around us the same love that we have experienced that is keeping us near to God. 
and through our engaging them in our demonstrating them and then hopefully having the opportunity to share the gospel with them, they enter into the life and can answer the question that this man has. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer is to love God with all of your heart, your mind, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Never reversing that order, never assuming that we are loving God by loving others, but never having to justify loving either others either. We are called to be a light and to help to this community where God has placed us. And my prayer is one of thankfulness that we do, and one of hope and expectation that we will continue and continue to do even more and that that may be evident in our lives in 2020.